Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. He breaks the power of canceled sin, we just sang, and that's a truth that we hope for and confess as we confess our sins. I'm going to turn to Daniel chapter 9 for our call to confession this morning. Read the first four verses. Hear God's word. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Thus far the reading of God's word. Today I'm going to be reading the rest of Daniel's prayer of confession there in chapter 9, and extending our time of silent prayer a bit longer than usual. Since the sermon is focused on this part of the service, confession of sin, we'll spend a little bit more time here today. This reminds us of our need to confess our sin. We continue in our sermon series in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9 today. I invite you to turn there. I'll be reading the entire chapter. Nehemiah 9. And you'll notice that most of this chapter is taken up with a prayer, which is why I used so much scripture and the prayers so far in the worship service. But let's read now chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Hear God's infallible word. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are Yahweh. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are Yahweh God, you who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants who have performed your words, for you are righteous." You saw the affliction of your fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against all his servants and against all the people of his land. 
for you knew that they had acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations, yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness." The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But... After they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and testified against them, that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly, and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders stiffened their necks, and would not hear. 
Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. Yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore, our God, the great and the mighty and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. Our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all, and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befallen us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom or in the many good things that you gave them or in the large and rich land which you set before them. Nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, In the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its bounty and its fruit, here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. The grass withers, the flower fades, and this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. A long passage here, much to consider. Uh, I'm going to focus on the first four verses. The the main theme is there. The, The main theme is that God's people here are confessing their sins thoroughly. And that's what the whole chapter is about, the next chapter too, actually. This is kind of a two-part sermon. The the two chapters, 9 and 10, go together very much. Uh, I'm going to jump right into the verse by verse, and we'll apply as we go along today. Uh, The 24th day of this month, this is a couple days after the feast. If you remember, I've been uh, repeating at the commission at the end of the service for the last month or two, that same uh, passage, those same verses. Do not fast, do not weep, right? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Remember that the, the feast day had come, and yet they're reading the book of the law, and, and they're seeing that they have not lived up to God's word, so they're weeping, they're, they're grieving, and yet the feast day has arrived. And so they have this feast interlude, because the feast is there, where the priests say, let's have the feast now, we'll get back to this. It's basically what happens. Well, now they get back to this. So a couple days after the feast, they're regathered, and they're fasting again. So after the feast is over, they're back to fasting. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, says, when you fast, that's often mentioned and assumes that we would be fasting. And Lent is an appropriate time to do this. Some do this during Lent fairly often. Uh, We around here, we like to fight and laugh and feast, we say, right? But as Solomon said, there is a time for everything. There's also a time for peace and a time for grieving and a time for fasting. And this was one of those times, especially when confronted with our sins, as Israel here was. They had just heard God's law in chapter 8, and now again here in chapter 9. And this is a natural response. Uh, When you're really distressed about something, just think naturally what happens. You lose your appetite, right? 
If you're really, really distressed about something, you, you can't eat. It's not, it's, it just doesn't work. Your body can't even do it, right? So Israel here, they aren't working up guilt feelings. They're not doing an artificial fast just because it's time. They're genuinely cut to the heart. It's like Isaiah says in chapter 6 of, of his book, right? Woe to me, for I am undone. That's what's happening here. And so they're fasting. Their, their heart condition comes out in what they do. There's no putting on a show here. There's no doing something for tradition's sake. They just don't feel right wearing normal clothes because they feel so wretched about themselves as guilty sinners. And so they put on sackcloth. They, they put dust or earth on their heads, it says. That's a very interesting practice and a, an interesting phrase. The Hebrew word there is Adam. Dust earth right it's a when you put dust on your head it's like a symbol that that i deserve to return to the dust from which i came just put the earth over me just bury me right they know they deserve death for what they've done the wages of sin is death so they're repenting and this repentance shows up in in action uh, verse 2, that those of Israelite lineage separate themselves from all foreigners. They stand and confess their sins. Now this starts to get into, the, the, this is the end of Nehemiah where there's an, a, a theme here that shows up that's often misinterpreted. This looks like an ethnic or a racial distinction in the wording. But it, I want to contend that it is not technically. Uh, it, there was in this time a situation where if you have a Venn diagram, right, it, it overlaps almost completely, right? Probably 90% of Samaritans worshipped other gods, not Yahweh. And probably 90% or more of Israelites worshipped Yahweh and not the other gods. So this is a bit of shorthand, I think, for saying that Israel separated, not for racial purity, but from any unbelievers, for this assembly of confession. And you have a hint forward to that in chapter 10, verse 30. That's what's going on. It's explained a bit more fully in, at certain uh, passages. 10.30, it says, one of their resolutions, we will not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Right? We're, we're not going to let our children marry Samaritans who worship the Samaritan gods. This fits right in with the New Testament directive that we need to marry in the Lord. Same idea. So that's what they're doing. They, many of the, the people had spouses who had married Samaritans, people of the land, it says. And so the, the Israelites, the faithful who want to re, uh, reconcile with the Lord, repent, they step away from that. And note that that wording includes, it can include the situation where you have a wife who is faithful to Yahweh, who separates from a pagan or a syncretistic husband. It could be that way as well as the other way. Those who want to repent and recommit to the Lord, God of Israel, separate from those who, can, who want to continue going to the Samaritan gods to worship. Just apply that today. I mean, if you're going to a small group where everyone there is seeking to confess their sexual sin, you're not going to take along an LGBTQ advocate, right? You're not going to take along the serial adulterer who's unrepentant. No, you're going to do a certain thing that they're not about at all. 
That's kind of the the situation here. Uh, Another way to apply that is in marriage. I've seen it several times, not so much in churches that I've pastored, but there are many situations where in marriage, uh, spouses find themselves spiritually mismatched. And one desires to go to church, and the other just doesn't see the point. And that's a tragic situation that separates them. But the one who goes to church, even though the spouse doesn't, the one who goes to church is in the right. They need to go to that assembly, even if it separates them uh, in, the, in the marriage. Jesus talks about that, that he comes to bring division in that way. So repentance in action here. Uh, what they're doing uh, is, verse 2 once again, uh, they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And you notice in the prayer that that's all it was, was the iniquities of their fathers, <laughs> right? In, chapter, in the next chapter, we'll see uh, more what, what they're confessing themselves. It's an odd thing, I'll repeat a few times this morning, this long prayer, this whole chapter, there's actually no specific list of what they're confessing their own sins for. That's an odd thing that we ought to think about. What they do, though, is they're confessing their own sins, that's true, and the sins of their fathers. Now, that's an idea that's gotten a lot of attention lately, confessing the sins of our fathers. Woke ideology insists that white people are guilty for the slaveholding of their fathers, for example. Or you're just guilty for benefiting from a country that's built on the backs of slaves, for example. Right? And conservatives sometimes react to this assertion too far, and assert that we should never confess the sins of our fathers. Well, that isn't biblical. It's right here. <laughs> so what does it mean exactly? It doesn't mean what, what the woke mean, but it doesn't mean we should step away from that practice at all. If you confess your own sins thoroughly, one thing that you do is you think through how you got there. Why did I do that? Why am I prone to do this? And sometimes the answer is, well, that's how I was taught. My parents were bad examples, or my friends at school led me down a wrong path, or here's one, my cultural and political leaders are trying to tell me all the time that I should define myself by how I feel, right? And that's, and all of that is just mostly present tense, right? There's all kinds of other things to consider. You know, take the New Deal of 100 years ago. It shaped us to look to the state for help instead of community and charity. The Cold War made us prone to see every Russian, maybe every Chinese person today, particularly evil and dangerous. Prosperous times, maybe say in the Reagan years, convinced us that we can spend and spend and spend and run up debt and there just won't be any consequences. There's all kinds of ways that our fathers have taught us wrongly, right? Because they have gone the wrong way. So when you confess your sin, you may wind up confessing the sins of previous generations. Man, we've been doing this man-woman-feminism thing wrong for at least 80 years, you, you realize. Or, man, my church 30 years ago when I was a kid, it didn't teach me doctrinal truth like they should have or could have. That's a way in which you realize the sins of your fathers. You can do that while still obeying the fifth commandment to honor your fathers. You you don't brush over uh, their faults. Uh, One way to think of it is to say this. Don't be too individualistic in how you see your sins. Your sins are your own, yes, 
But, but there's a, a covenant connection that's going on too. Now, each of us has a sinful heart and, and the blame is our own. I'm not saying here that we shift blame to previous generations. As I wrote that this week, I thought of the Billy Joel song. It's 30 years old now, I looked it up. 30 years ago, man. We didn't start the fire, right? Remember that song? We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. That song is so self-righteous, it's crazy. It's amazing. But no, don't look back in history and see a whole lot of sin and then set yourself apart from it as, as if you're different and better. That's what so many people are doing today. No, we're in covenant connection with our fathers and they sinned and we're like them. All the time we're thinking, man, if only I was Adam in the garden, I wouldn't have done that. Yes, you would have. <laughs> That's the covenant connection that God is making here, that the people are confessing here. That's Jesus' point in Matthew 23. You build the tombs of the prophets that your fathers killed, saying you wouldn't have done it. And, and then paraphrase, read between the lines what's going on there. You know, Jesus is saying, your leaders are, are planning to kill me right now. And you're going to be fine with it. That, it happens all over again. So no, don't, don't shove all your guilt into the past. Or don't shove all your guilt onto others. We're not doing that. What you're doing is cancer surgery on your sin. Right now. And you want to trace it back to its roots and make sure you get it all. That's what you're trying to do. So, uh, two important points to, to wrap that aside up. It, your father's sin is not your sin. Even if it plays a part in shaping you toward sinning that way, you are still responsible for it. You, you confess the sin of your fathers differently than you do your own. There's a covenant connection there that makes you grieve for their faults that have affected you badly. But you can't repent for them. God doesn't hold you guilty for them. And second, there's a way out. Right? I, I think it's a, a, it's a satanic element of woke ideology today. It's, it's the lack of forgiveness and mercy. You have to constantly repent of guilt that isn't yours, and then you're just reduced to second-class status now. Others will be privileged instead of you. And there's nothing more you can do. That's it. Just keep repenting. Well, that isn't social justice. That's demonic vengeance. So, now in all this, besides that, in all this, we're tending to focus on other people, right? How sinful the culture around us is, or how sinful past generations were. Here in Nehemiah 9, Israel is confessing their own sin so thoroughly that they're delving into patterns of familial and cultural generational patterns that contributed to where they are now. But this all comes back to each of us. They're standing up themselves, hearing God's word, confessing their own sin. We have to live differently than our fathers did. We have to live differently than our culture is living to follow God faithfully. That's what they're realizing, confessing, and praying. Uh, so, a lot there. Verse 3 and don't worry, I won't spend this much time on every verse in this chapter or we'd be here all day. No. Verse 3. Now, we've jumped ahead already in the timing. Verse 3 tells us what happened during that day. They're, they're reading from the book of the law for a fourth of the day. Another fourth they're confessing and worshiping before God. 
So again, you have this long time frame, right? The last chapter, it was uh, half the day they stand and hear God's word. Here it's a fourth of the day, which, I don't know, three hours, four hours? Uh, if there's 16 hours of daylight, four hours is a fourth? I don't know. Three to four hours just hearing God's word again. And then three to four hours confessing their sins and worshiping God. I, I thought about this and I thought I'd, I'd apply it this way. One way to gauge your spiritual life is when time flies by for you and when it drags, right? New converts often report that they just spent all their spare time right after conversion, all their spare time just reading the Bible and praying and evangelizing. That's all they wanted to do and time just flies by, right? It, often it's the opposite for some of us who are raised in the faith and urged to read our Bibles. And we try to read the Bible every day. And just two chapters, just 15 minutes, just seems to drag. Right? I think that's kind of a gauge of your spiritual life. What do you do about that? Well, I think you confess your sin of wanting to spend time doing what you want. You can't spare a few minutes for your Creator, for your Savior, the one who keeps you alive moment by moment. So they spend half the day reading the word and responding in confession of sin. And it's interesting to know what it says, confession and worship at the end of verse 3. I think that's important because the next 34 verses, the whole rest of the chapter, has, again, like I said, no personal confession of sin in it. So something else is going on. And yet, I contend, it's a vivid description of what we do when we repent. Okay? Okay? So I'm not saying here that when you confess your sins, you don't actually list and name your sins. I think we need to do that. But this text is, is showing us something else. So the whole rest of this chapter is just going to be, when we repent, this is what it looks like. And I'll just give a few of those working through this more in blocks, and it'll go, we'll, uh, go through a lot quicker. Verse 4 and 5, you have a list of names once again. Here you have a cadre of teachers, Right? Uh, when we repent, one thing that happens is we seek out several teachers that we can respect to help us going forward, right? We forge relationships with other like-minded believers, especially in a local church. It gives you access to that. Uh, we've got online today. Online's a great place to start. Some of you even found us online, right? There's uh, all kinds of things that you can do online. I, I do so myself. But it's no substitute for in-person interaction, forging a community together. And let me just get really specific on this. It's very important. Moms need to see other moms mother. Fathers need to see other fathers father as faithful Christians. It's really important. Christians need to hear how their pastor prays. It should be a good example. Sometimes it's not, right? Same with the others. Boys need to see how other boys react to their parents. That's what I'm talking about. We need a multitude of counselors in a community in which to, to gauge and compare how, how are we supposed to live out faithfulness to God. So when we repent, we seek out a multitude of counselors. We seek out fellowship like that. That's what we see in, in the, just in that list of names. You've got all these men, Levites mostly, who are leading the people in worship. Uh, when we repent, the, the next thing, and it, this covers the whole rest of the chapter, when we repent, we pray. 
we pray. This, this group of leaders puts together this long prayer. And I was reading it, I thought of something else I should say that wasn't in my notes or my thoughts this week at all, uh, sadly. But what's going on here partly, too, is uh, <clears throat> Ezra and his scribes and Levites here are, are reforging a worldview for a new generation that's coming back to the Lord. Right? There's a, there's a revival here. They've returned to Israel, to Zion, and they want to live for God. Well, the first thing you do is you read the Bible a whole lot. That's good. And you pray. You rebuild the walls. You work together. You also forge a worldview again. This is almost a sort of catechism, a history of God's people. That What they're doing is summarizing that whole book of the law in, in 30 verses. That, that's one thing you do is you summarize, put it all together in, in a consistent worldview. Well, that's, that's something else you do when you repent. I just wanted to add that in. When we repent, we pray. Um, I found verse 5 interesting. It's very similar to what I say at the beginning of every worship service, ever since I've come here, every Sunday. Stand up and bless the Lord your God. Right? Please stand. Let us worship the triune God together, I say. Right? It almost becomes rote every Sunday. But it's right there in the text. This is God's worship leaders calling upon God's people to stand and bless God. That's what they're doing. And then they pray this prayer. Again, no specific sin listed. That's going to come next week. We read that in the, in the passage that I read in chapter 10, where they're committing to do certain things and not others. But they bless God's name, and they exalt it. That's the end of verse 5. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all, blessing above all blessing and praise. This encapsulates the whole Christian life. Right? Think of the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Right? Bless God's name and exalt it. That's what we're made for. We're made, we're worshipers. We're made to be worshipers. We'll worship something. We really ought to worship the one who made us. A couple of you kids out there, you, you uh, came up to me last week and you sang to me the first answer of the catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the same thing too. We're called to glorify God, bless his name, exalt him. And it summarizes the whole rest of the prayer, really. And it's, it's the big picture of repentance. When we, when we repent, we stop exalting ourselves. We put God first. We put God before ourselves. That's what repentance is. Verse 6, when we repent, we believe God made everything, and he made us, and he preserves it all. You see that in verse 6. It starts with creation. If God made us, then we have an obligation to him. People who don't want to repent will come up with all kinds of ways to deny or ignore this, that we have a creator. And think about it philosophically. There's materialism, Darwinism, Atheism, homosexuality, transgenderism, they're all forms of this. Now you get to do whatever you want because you think that's how it is. But when you repent, you say, God made me and the world around me and he told me how to live in it. And so our lives repeat Adam and Eve in the garden all the time. 
God makes them, he makes the garden, he makes the trees, he makes the serpent, although he doesn't make his evil, right? So there are going to be, uh, there's going to come into your life, into your garden, things that should not be there. And you're supposed to live this way, but, but, that's, but that's in the way, that has to go, or it has to change, because that's not how God meant it to be. That's one way to describe the whole Christian life. When we repent, we believe God made everything with a design in mind that we need to follow. That's, that's God as creator. And then verse 7 and 8, we see Abram. God cho- chooses Abram. God is covenant maker, right? When we repent, we see God as covenant maker. Uh, and here the recounting of history starts, just like Stephen does in the, the speech before he's stoned. God plucks us up out of our mess. This is what he does with Abraham. He renames us. He makes promises to us. He gives Abraham the land. We see God keep his promises to us. Uh, The end of verse 8 is very precious. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. Uh, That's the application, the the spirit-inspired application of meditating on Abraham. And what God did for him. You've performed your words. Think about that. After centuries of disobedience on Israel's part, being conquered, exiled to foreign lands for decades, and they come back and they stand there back in the land. I talked to some of you, and some of you have been there outside of God's favor exiled, adrift, and you look back and you know it. You were where Abraham was, worshiping some moon god. You're where Israel was, addicted to their pleasures on the high places. Some of you maybe are there right now. But God keeps his covenant. If he can save a pagan moon god worshiper like Abram, give him descendants of faithful like the stars, he can have mercy on you. And break that hold that that sin has on your life. Abram's promised descendant, Jesus, is your covenant keeper. And when we repent, we see him in covenant mercy, performing his words. Then you have verses 9 through 12. God is covenant keeper. He redeems Israel from Egypt. This is recounted. When we repent, we see God saving us completely. There's not a whole lot new here theologically, but God kind of fills in the, the corners, right? God as covenant keeper means, verse 9, that he hears our cry. You saw the affliction. And then verses 10 and 11, he works for us, right? He divides the sea. He throws Pharaoh into the sea. And then verse 12, part of being saved is that God provides for us and he leads us. A, a pillar of cloud and fire by night to give them light on the road which they should travel. So that there's a a completeness of salvation there, right? He hears us in our distress, he works for us, and he provides for us. When we repent, we acknowledge that God does this for us personally, that he has done it, that he will do it. Verses 13 to 15, God is nation establisher. When we repent, we accept God's pattern for our life. We, we don't go after our own. Here we see verse 13, God giving us his law. We, we don't make up our own rules. God's given them to us. He gives us daily bread. 
verse, what verse is that? 15? 15. Uh, Even if it's a stretch to meet our needs, which it often was for Israel in the desert, right? Three days with no water. They're crying out, but God brings water out of the rock. God will provide, even if it's a stretch. God sends us to take the land last in verse 15. And often we would rather just rest on our laurels with our manna. But God says, go take the land. So when we repent, we accept God's pattern for our life. God is forgiver in verses 16 to 21. Moving faster now. When we repent, we remember past sins forgiven. Here's the portion where he recounts the golden calf. Right? God says after that that he'd send an angel with Moses instead of himself. I'm, I'm not going to go myself. I can't stand you people. Is basically what God says in Exodus 33 after the golden calf. Moses intercedes. God relents. And he says his presence will go with them. I will give you rest. And he gives them manna. He miraculously, I think, preserves their clothes for 40 years in the desert. And this is the opposite of what they deserved. And it's the same with us. And this doesn't mean it's simple and easy, those 40 years in the desert. At 40 days, Moses was on the mountain. I don't think that was an easy time. It can be a long, hard process for us to set aside our sin, to trust God's provision. Or verse 20 is, is good. It, it can be a long process to learn to follow the Spirit, to teach us. Right? But when, when we repent, we remember God has forgiven our sins before, He is saving us. And part of being saved is being able to trust him. So that's repentance too, is is training yourself to trust the Lord. Verse 22 to 25, God is an inheritance grantor. Here God gives the people the land. When we repent, we see that God has given us more than we realize. God keeps the promise to Abraham to give him the land. He gives them the means to go on providing for themselves. He gives them olive vineyards, uh, right? Olive trees, uh, grape vineyards. Uh, God gives them the means by which they can continue to be provided for. When we repent, uh, we see that God was merciful to us in the past. That's verse 26 to 31, a longer section yet. When we repent, we see God will be merciful even when we have deliberately gone against him before. Verse 26, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Cast your law behind their backs. The poetry here gets quite compelling. Killed your prophets. That's not poetry, that's just literal history. Who testified against them to turn them to yourself. They worked great provocations. And and verse 29, they did not heed your commandments. They acted proudly. And God then makes it hard for them for a while. They shrugged their shoulders, verse 29. Stiffened their necks. I like, that's some great poetry too because that's often what we literally do when we go against God. We just, whatever. We shrug at God in our sin. And so that God is patient. He does not utterly consume them, 30 and 31. God may make it hard for us for a while in our wandering. The prodigal son had it that way. And that's described in verses 27 and 28. But he will not utterly consume us. We may be on the brink, on the knife's edge, just a few dollars left in the account. But when we repent, we see God preserving us as a mercy. And so verse 32 turns to the present. Deliver us from our current trouble. 
When we repent, we see our trouble for what it is, and we see the consequences of our sin. I love the phrase, all the trouble, there in the fourth line or so of verse 32. Do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us. And they describe a bit of it, from exile to the present, the past generation's disobedience in verse 34 and 35, the current distress in verse 36, they're oppressed by Persia, they're allowed to return, but the land really isn't their own. They have to pay high taxes to Persia for it. They have no civil rights. Verse 37, our bodies, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And so they, they say, verse 36, here we are, servants today. You might as well use the word slave. Servant and slave are very much uh, interchangeable in Scripture. They're slaves uh, to the Persian king. Sin makes us slaves. And that's something theologically to keep in mind. When we go on in unrepentant sin for a long time, sin makes us slaves. Doug Wilson likes to say that a nation that's addicted to porn and weed cannot be free. It's very true. There's a direct connection there. And we, are, we go off and pursue the political angle, but we're forgetting the porn and the weed. When we're sinning, we're slaves to sin. When we repent, we see our trouble for what it is. If we can't govern ourselves, then we'll be governed by others, some say. Verse 38, the last verse, the people make a sure covenant together. Here it's interesting, the word covenant isn't even there. We make a sure, (laughs) classic Hebrew, that sure becomes a noun there, just like we do a lot of verbing these days. The Hebrews did a lot of nouning. We make a sure. In other words, we're going to do a sure thing. It's a resolution is really what it is. And it's, it's covenant in the theological term. When we repent, we resolve together to make specific changes. There's resolution. And we'll see that next week more specifically. We do this together. That's one thing. They're, they're doing this together, not in isolation. And this trips many of us up. I've dealt with this pastorally quite a bit. We don't need to know all the gory details of our neighbor's temptations and sins, but we do need to know that we are all fighting sin and sometimes losing. And we need to have some idea of the specifics of that. Um, Rosaria Butterfield uh, is, is well known in our circles these days. She was is a former LGBT advocate and uh, lesbian herself who converted and is now a faithful uh, uh, author and, and Christian. She likes to say, when I go into church and, and I meet some new people, one of the questions I'll often ask them is, what did you give up to be at church today? What, are, what sin are you trying to set aside? You're here, and that's being faithful to the Lord means you're getting rid of something else. And sometimes we have to tell somebody else what that is. Again, don't need all the gory details, but that's important. You, you can't just do God talk here and then live however you want. That's not what we're about. So resolution is good. Written down. Self-deception is easy. But if you write it down and you sign your name with others, you have more objective commitment. That's what's going on here. That's why church membership, discipleship, 
uh, church discipline is so important. Not that we're going to come down hard on you with a hammer at the first whiff of awful sin. That's not it at all. But we do need to make a commitment to move together in the right direction. And, let's, and we let others prod us that way, as is appropriate, in patience, grace, and mercy. So when we repent, we resolve together to make specific changes. That's uh, the end of getting through the verses there. And just to point out here again, Jesus convicts Israel of sin. Much of his public ministry is just that. We forget about it all the time. We, we just uh, think about the Sermon on the Mount and the, 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 the nice stuff. But we read Matthew 23. Jesus, too, calls many of uh, the Israelites serpents and a brood of vipers. Your fathers killed the prophets. And read Revelation 2 and 3 sometime. It's all over there as well. Lots of encouragement from Jesus to the churches, but also conviction of sin. Jesus is our prophet who continues to do this. But at the same time, he's also the seed of Abraham, the promised one, by whom God can keep covenant of mercy with us. That's what this whole chapter is looking forward to in its entirety. How can God keep that covenant? That question isn't answered here. But they testify and they declare God can keep covenant and mercy. And he does. God's people confess their sins thoroughly in this chapter. Let us do so in our own lives as well. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for giving to us your word to show us what repentance looks like. We pray, Lord, for a spirit of, of uh, confession, uh, of uh, bringing us back to you, uh, showing us where we are going uh, wrong in our patterns of living and thinking and, and, uh, and behaving. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, instruct us, that you would guide us. Uh, help us, Lord, to be more faithful to you. Uh, Lord, where we need to confess to others, give us the humility to do that. Where we need to uh, make changes in our own lives. Give us the strength of will, uh, the humbleness uh, of self-will uh, to bend ours to yours. As Christ said in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Even looking ahead to the cross to see the difficult path that was before him, he could say that. Lord, give us the ability to say and to do the same. We pray in the name of this Jesus. Uh, ever-living word, and we'll sing as we first. Psalm 107 for our communion exhortation. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way, that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul, and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. One thing that happens often around the dinner table is telling stories. Family 
memories. Remember when we were on vacation and mom got sick? Remember when Johnny drove for the first time by himself? Remember when dad thought there was a burglar in the house that one night? Stories. Remember when? The table is a good time to reinforce the gospel, God's story. To remember when we didn't love God and we were just adrift out there. Remember when God rescued us from our stupidity and rebellion? Remember when we had that car accident? God really delivered us that day, didn't he? One way to commune with God is to remember when. The big one, of course, is the one Jesus gives us. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember when our forgiveness, our redemption was accomplished? Remember the women crying off at a distance? Our leaders taunting him? The soldiers brutalizing him? How the sun went out? How he cried out to God? How he rose from the dead the day after the Sabbath on a new Lord's day of life? Remember when? And so we come to remember to the king. Come, for all things are now ready. The body of Christ broken for you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I dot com. Again, thank you and blessings.